All right, welcome back to Through the Pines, a financial planning podcast with a down to earth, 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 with a down to earth vibe. Even Sasquatch would watch Beetlejuice for. It's that time of year, yes, and that's one of my favorite Halloween movies. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, don't say it a third time. You know, this is Through the Pines. Back again, joining us are our financial wizards, if I may call you that, including Rex Baxter, Brandon Smith, and Dan Nelson. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, This week, we are talking about congratulations, you've made it. You have made it all the way to retirement. Dan is the only one who is there, and look at him, he's still working hard. So, uh, but what do you do in your 60s? You're in your 60s. What are the financial decisions you need to make about insurance? Medicare, Social Security. Um, there's some longevity considerations. You know, what do, what do we do with our retirement income? What are some of the questions that we need to answer? So, uh, Rex, where do we start on this? Insurance? Oh, uh, there's, there's lots of places to start. First, thanks for having us, Brandon. We're always yeah. happy to be on your show and, and love doing the podcast. I, I listened to a few other people's podcasts named, to, to remain nameless. <laughs> and and I might be a little biased, but I like ours best. So oh, I'm glad everybody's tuning in. So good. so so you know I think insurance is we can start with insurance. Insurance is yeah. is a great question. You know you you turn sixty, you're anywhere from zero years to retirement to to five six seven depending upon what your goals are and what you're trying to do, and that's a common question that we get is I'm sixty. How much insurance do I really need at age sixty? And so maybe I'll let um, Brand- Brandon has a strong insurance background. Uh, he started with Northwestern Mutual well over a decade ago now. And so he's he's our resident insurance expert as far as that goes or, or best at insurance cases. And so, Brandon, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I, I think the best way to kick off an insurance segment is that at with most coffee. all. Huh? Lots of coffee. Yeah, tons. Um, no, no, most insurance is structured so that for every dollar you pay into an insurance policy, you're going to receive about 60 cents back. Um, by definition, that's not typically a very good investment, right? Like that we don't want to be playing that game all day long where we're paying in a dollar and getting 60 cents back. However, there are just some things that we can't afford to lose, right? If I were to pass away, I need to make sure that my family's taken care of, right, and has enough um, to provide for themselves. And so when we get to our 60s, we start hoping that we've done planning well enough that we can self-insure, right? That's where where maybe we can start backing off on the life insurance, right? Hopefully we've built up some retirement savings. Um, we've, we've got the social security that's going to start kicking in. And, and, and really it comes down to an individual level where we're where we're looking at at your situation and saying, you know, how how much or how little insurance do we need to make sure that the you know if the worst happened that we could get by, whether that's disability, um, life insurance, the the health insurance type stuff. But we're really trying not we're trying not to overinsure while also making sure that your needs are are protected. One thing on that, when you're in your 60s, it's important and and looking into retirement planning, it's important to realize what income would be lost if someone were to pass away or someone were to become disabled, right? We might lose uh, one social security benefit between a couple. 
Um, how much income would we lose? And so we take those things into consideration when we're trying to plan our insurances in our 60s. Brandon, how much insurance is too much insurance? Is there a mathematical easy equation for that? Or besides Rex's, it depends. <laughs> I, I don't know that there's an easy mathematical. Really what it comes down to is, is just running through the scenario and saying, if I pass away today, what happens, right? My, my, my spouse loses my income, um, my kids, what happens to them? And, and so I would say you have too much if you passing away creates a better life for, for your dependents, right? We, that, that, that doesn't really make sense. And in fact, typically maybe we try and insure up to, or maybe just a hair under. Um, but, but I know that wasn't a perfect answer, but it really does depend. I, I think something else to consider is, is there's obviously different kinds of insurance, right? You're talking about term insurance, permanent insurance, it, you know, variable insurance, thing, things along those lines. And, and I think it depends on, you know, Brandon said it depends, but one of the things that it depends on is, is your net worth and what we're trying to protect. Are we trying to protect income during retirement or are we trying to protect your estate and your legacy from paying estate taxes and death taxes? And there's different kinds of insurance for each of those goals. And so I think meeting with a financial advisor and trying to determine what kind of insurance is gonna be the most cost effective from both a cost and premium standpoint, but also most cost effective from a tax saving standpoint long-term is, is a great question that you should be asking. Okay, so nothing has passed yet, but have you, have you all seen anything in the uh, current, I guess, drawn up Democratic bills that, that if passed would affect insurance and or anything that passes on to the next generation? So we have heard um, bits and pieces. We're, we're not sure exactly what will pass. I mean, I, from what I understand is the book's about this big so far. I think it's bigger. And, and it's growing by about that much for every vote that they're trying to get. Okay. And so <laughs> obviously I say that a little tongue in cheek, but you know, one of the things that's on the chopping block is the estate tax limits is, is currently an individual is allowed to pass a little bit over 11 million at the point of death from themselves to their heirs, um, unlimited to their spouse. And so if you're married, then, then you can protect up to 22 million. Currently that's set to expire in 2026, January 1st of 2026 or December 31st of 2025. So, so roughly about three years until that's going to expire. Right now they're having a, a big debate on whether they should cut that down to roughly 5 million or three and a half million. And, and there's a lot of arguments back and forth versus just leaving it and letting it expire of its own weight in three years to where it would then kick back to 5 million. So my guess is we'll have some clarity here in about three months on, on the estate tax limits, but that's certainly part of the bill that's, that's in front of Congress now. And then can you protect any of that stuff through insurance? I'm sorry, did you say Dan, Brandon? Uh, sure, Dan. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I didn't know, I I didn't know if insurance could, uh, could help protect any of the estate taxes down the line. Yeah, so I'll chime in and, and talk a little bit about insurance and my thoughts over the last uh, 40 years as I've, I've, I've looked at this. Early in life, when you have small children and a family and something happens to you as a husband or even a wife that's working, uh, you've got to try and replace that income. Insurance is a really important part of a, of a financial plan or of your life. 
later in life, when you get to be my age, uh, you need to look at the debt that you have. If you have a lot of debt, you need to replace that. You need to cover that for a spouse or someone else that you're going to leave uh, if you were to pass away. And so you should have insurance to cover that. Or if you have a big estate that is largely in real estate or something that's illiquid uh, and, and it's a large estate, you need to be really pay attention to what Rex just was talking about having to do the estate laws, the, ta the tax estate laws. So that's important. Uh, that's how I view insurance. Uh, it, it's something that you need at certain points in your life and other times uh, you could be what's a lot of people entitled or call self-insured. If you have a lot of net worth and it's liquid and um, you're not providing for a small family to take care of them, if you pass away, there's not as big a need for insurance in your life. Very good. Insurance is so exciting. I hate to leave it, but I do want to jump on to uh, Social Security a little bit because that's something that a lot of people rely on. Is it enough to live on if you're in your 60s? And you know, what are some of the basics? Uh, I think I have in my notes that we should probably do a whole show on Social Security. But you know, what are some just basics on Social Security that we should know approaching our 60s? Who wants to take this, Rex? Yeah, so I'll I'll start on that. Um, you know, I. First off, I think the big question we get all the time is, is will Social Security be there, right? Am I going to receive any kind of benefit from Social Security when I retire? And, and when you're in your 60s, although it's a, a critical question, I don't think it's quite as big of a concern as far as will it be there. I, I think the question becomes a little bit more of how much is going to be there? Am I going to get my full benefit? Are they going to reduce the benefit? Um, things along those lines. And so some of the changes that have happened over the last year, in addition to uh, the cost of living increase that they're looking at this next year on Social Security, you know, has, is reducing the, the full funding of Social Security down to roughly 2034. Is that right, Brandon? Roughly? I've got some small numbers on it. I, I, uh, I, yeah, let's hear it. Let's hear some more numbers. <laughs> Can we interrupt this this segment to do some small numbers? I love it. Yes. <laughs> so, so this was actually the the Social Security Trustees 2021 report. They came out and said, um, in the year 2033, uh, uh, they announced that the trust fund backing the payment of Social Security benefits would be zero in 2023. Sorry, I didn't read that very well. But basically, by the year 2020 or 2033, the trust fund for Social Security runs out of money. Now, a lot of people think, holy cow, that means bankrupt. We lose all, you know, all Social Security benefits. That's not true. It says that the Social Security, Social Security benefits would drop to 76% of their originally promised levels. And, and so I, I think kind of an answer to Rex's question is, is that although we're kind of cruising for a bruising, right, <laughs> in the social security realm and that we're, we're likely going to run out of money if we don't change something, if we don't fund social security somehow, it's, it's really if we do nothing else, we're, we're going to still have about 76% income, right, from younger people paying into the system, they're going to cover 76% of the benefits that are promised to go out. And, and so as we do financial planning, we typically try and plan on that 75, 80% benefit level just to be conservative because most, most people believe that 
someone somewhere is going to do something right to fully fund the social security system just because people haven't saved enough they've paid into it their whole lives and it would be political suicide to tell someone hey we're not going to pay you your retirement income and and so hopefully that adds maybe a little clarity there brandon you said in a past episode that uh it hurts when you have sudden financial impact if you're not if you're used to living on a certain level of money well if you're if it's 2031 and you're used to a certain amount of money coming in through social security and then you you lose it the next year it drops down to 76 that could hurt if you're not prepared yeah it it really would the odds of that happening of them just cliffing you know going from 100 percent benefit down to 76 i think are unbelievably rare But with that said, that's why it's nice to have, you know, retirement savings, right? So we're not fully dependent on the government to pay us our retirement, right? That those those IRAs and 401k plans can provide that buffer, provide that cushion so that we're not fully dependent on on Congress. (laughs) Yeah, for anything would be nice. Uh, Okay. Yeah, go ahead, Dan. Yeah, I would say on Social Security, I think it's important to understand also that those are currently on Social Security. Um, there is no one on either side of the aisle that is going to be the party that's going to say we're cutting existing benefits that are already being paid, first of all. I, I think everybody needs to understand that. And also, I don't think there would be anybody on either side of the aisle that is going to be the one or the party that says, you know what, let's cut Social Security back to 90% or 80%. I think they'll figure out a way to fund it, frankly. They might raise the age on which you qualify for Social Security. I can see them ha- that happening for people that are younger. But again, as people that are younger, those that are in their 60s, like we're talking about here, uh, I would think it would be very, very rare that you wouldn't get your benefit. Just to add a little more perspective on that, as far as what Dan's talking about, we've been here before. A lot of people say that history repeats itself. I think this will probably be one of those times. And so back in the early starting part of Dan's career, um, you know, we, we got down to the point to we were within nine months, if I remember correctly, of Social Security um, essentially hitting that that collapse point to where the, the inflows aren't meeting the outflows of the social security need before Congress actually acted. And so they waited till, till the last minute and that's when they started to, to make some of those at that point, they made a tax change on social security. So that was 35 years ago or so to where they, they changed the tax rate on social security. And I think that that's the last time that they changed the, the actual rate. Since then they've changed the taxable income limits as far as how much of your income is taxed and then since then, they've also um, created later ages based on your birth date as to when you're eligible for your full retirement benefits. But I don't think it takes major changes to have a long lasting impact on Social Security. And I think any of those are are up for discussion, whether it's increasing the Social Security tax by, by 1% or half a percent, whether it's going from a 67 uh, and 10 months full retirement age to age 70, which is where we're headed up to 72, maybe for full retirement age benefits. Um, I think there's a number of minor changes that I think Congress will enact before we hit 2033 that will extend that out. So. Good to know. Good. That's a, that's more comforting as well. So that's good. 
Uh, let's chat about my man Roth. Uh, are you seeing more and more people retire with with Roth IRAs versus traditional IRAs? And then what you know, what do you do with your Roths in retirement? What what are Roth conversions? So so this has been in the news a lot lately, right? As far as as what they've termed mega Roths, mm. right? To where somebody with a private company might put some of their their private stock shares into their Roth IRA, and it goes from you know ten thousand to a billion dollars or something something crazy, right? I was hoping you'd do that for, so, for all for all your clients, Rex. I was under the understanding that that the Banyan Collective, with its current <laughs> You know, capital ratios was, was in that camp. We're Are you not in that camp? There. We're Brandon? almost there. Yeah. It's okay. So close. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you've done more than most. You've started. So, <laughs> so that's better than some can say. But I, you know, some of those things are on the chopping blocks too. And so, you know, there's discussions about Roth conversions. Will they be eligible under the new tax law? Um, will, you know, what will the limitations be? And so we're, we're keeping a pretty close eye on that, but Brandon, do you want to talk a little bit more about Roth conversions? Yeah. Yeah. And, and like Rick said, there, there are, you know, we're, we're kind of worried that there might be some changes as it stands on the Roth conversion side of it. It looks like if you're single and your income is, is less than 400,000 a year or married filing jointly, income less than 450,000 a year, it looks like we're still going to be able to use Roth conversions. Um, so my guess is that even if they do pass this, that Roth conversions will still be a very beneficial strategy going forward. But essentially what it is, is you can convert um, money from, from your traditional 401k or your traditional IRA over to a Roth IRA at really any amount at any given year. Now the catch is, whenever you convert that, whatever you convert is taxable to you in that year as income. So if you say, hey, I, I want to move, you know, $20,000 from this bucket to this bucket so that it's never taxed again, it grows tax free. And I have this, this nice, safe, you know, tax safe nest egg in retirement, we can start doing that. Now, when you're in your 60s, typically, while you're still working, you're in the highest income years of your life. So we don't usually like to do that, right? Because that's going to add to your highest, you know, you're already in your highest tax bracket and we just add on top of that. Sometimes it works, um, but for example, if, you're, if your income is, is less than about $106,000 married filing jointly, we can kind of sneak it in under that. Um, however, once you retire, your income typically comes down. And so if we've got bandwidth there between, you know, in, that, in those lower tax brackets, we want to use that all up, convert from traditional to Roth, pay the tax on it today and be very conscious and, you know, and, and, and make sure we know what we're doing, work with your CPA, make sure we get that right. Um, but consciously convert and pay tax on money while you're in those lower tax brackets. That typically is between your retirement and when you turn age 72 and you're forced to start taking money out of your IRAs. And so that the Roth conversion is absolutely something you should be thinking about really your whole life, but especially in your 60s, because you have that little window there where your tax rates typically drop for a little bit and, and we can sneak out some really good money and good tax rates and make it so it's never taxable to you again ever in your life. Right. And now, do you see Congress making any changes to the Roth, which defeats the purpose? 
You know, it's hard to predict, you know, what government will do that. That would be a pretty, a pretty hard slap in the face. I, I don't see that happening. Um, but, but, you know, it's always something to consider, but, but it, it likely isn't, it's not something that would likely happen. Okay. Uh, remind me again what in-service distributions are. Yeah, great, great question. So once you turn 59 and a half, so maybe this one should have been in the 50s. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, 59, yeah. 59 and a half or, or older, right? And, and it depends on your 401k plan, but most 401k plans allow you to pull the money out of the 401k while you're still participating, right? So this doesn't dis- disrupt the rest of your 401k, but we pull the main, major part of the balance out and we roll it into an IRA. Um, the reason the IRS allows you to do that is because once, and I think we kind of discussed this in, in the 50s podcast, but once you turn 60, you know, we really want to be a little bit more careful with, with your money. Big market fluctuations when you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s just doesn't matter, right, as much. It, it drops, it cuts in half, it goes up, it doesn't matter, it's long-term money. When you're in your 60s, we... we we can't really afford that a lot of times, right? We don't want to see your money drop and take these massive swings. And and so most 401ks allow you to pull money out of the 401k and manage it in an IRA where, where we can keep a closer eye on it, where we have access to more investments and, and we can just try and make sure that money's just a little bit safer than it would be just in a generic target date fund in a 401k. Right. But Dan said, always get the match on your, on your 401k. So do you, how do you do that? If you're still working and you're 59, you haven't retired yet. Do you still contribute, get the match? Do you pull it out? Like, what do you do? Exactly. And that's, that's the best part of an in-service distribution is, is that in-service part, you are still participating in the 401k. And so you're still contributing to it. You're still receiving the match, but essentially that balance, that big balance you see will go, you know, from the, the higher amount down to just a very small amount, but then you'll continue to, to add to it. And, and so what we can do and what works so well is, is we can pull that, that majority out, put it in an IRA and then increase the aggressiveness in the 401k, right? And what that does is as you're investing month after month and dollar cost averaging in, we can see a lot more volatility, which long-term can can really maximize that dollar cost averaging effect. And so it, it really, the strategy works out really nicely. We just want to make sure it's used in conjunction, you know, with the rest of your rest of your retirement plan. Dan, do you have a comment on that? Yeah, and keep in mind that when you do an in-service distribution and you roll that over to an IRA, it's a non-taxable event. So you don't pay any taxes on that rollover from the 401k in-service distribution over to the IRA. And then obviously what Brandon said was important because you, you're still contributing to that 401k and you're still getting the full max benefit as far as the match goes. So. How how often do you see people try and play with their the the funds that are within their own four hundred one k and and how much do you you know help guide them with that because maybe they want to do that themselves before they roll it into an IRA or something I don't know. Well, it's important I think when you're doing financial planning and you're talking to people about their investments, one of their biggest investments obviously is their home. Another biggest investment is their retirement plan inside of a four hundred one k, especially if they've received a match from the company over a period of years. And so that should be part of the conversation. And everyone's a little bit different. Some um, 
don't even know there is anything called an in-service distribution. Most people don't talk about it that often. And so that's something you can bring up. Some people are more interested in getting some of the money out of that 401k and into their own account in an IRA where it can be self-directed uh, in a maybe more conservative manner or, or a little bit more aggressive depending on what they want to do with it. Um, and then they can still leave the money, some money in the 401k. But it should be part of the conversation you have with your financial planner because it is a big part of your net worth usually. To to your point, Brandon, people yeah. will do that. The, what, yeah. I mean, there's nothing keeping you from rolling that out of your employer 401k into just like your own, you know, account that you trade on the internet. And, and I've seen, I mean, just but you can place your funds within your own 401k. You can log into your own 401k and choose what funds and things. Yeah, think, typically, not always. Is it once a year yeah. or something? Yeah, no, typically, not always. But typically, those funds are limited to a very narrow scope, right? 20, okay. 30, 40 mutual funds. Um, we, we, we do have some 401ks that will allow the participant to go out, right, and choose from the whole universe. But it, it starts to get dangerous just because that and, and the in-service, once a participant pulls it out and just tries to manage it on their own, um, I just see all the time where people, you know, they're talking around the water cooler, like, man, did you see what this one stock did? And, and they take all the diversity away. They throw it in, in one, two, three stocks and and kind of with the hope that it's just going to take off. And man, what can that do for my retirement? And and then it doesn't. And 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 you can really derail a retirement if you're not careful about well, that. And you. Well, that's what they blame me. Well, that you could blame me if I wasn't telling you not to do that. <laughs> yeah, I, I no, think it's always good. interesting, Brandon, to to watch both Brandons to see, you know, how how people think that they can predict the future with their four hundred one k plans, and and so that is a small percentage of participants typically that are really kind of whipping and jingling their four hundred one k plans and and things like that. A lot of four hundred one k plans have put in you know, some, some negatives, some fees, things like that to stop frequent trading. You know, a lot, a lot of times you can't trade the same fund for a month or for a few weeks or something like that because it, it increases the overall fees of the 401k plans and hurts the, the other participants in the plan. And so you, you see a little bit of that, but I think it's, it's becoming less and less over time. I think the people that are really trying to, to do that, try and get the money out of the 401k plan when they hit 60. And if they're really trying to to do something like that and they try and do it in their own IRA accounts. I think one caveat to, to the in-service distributions that we haven't touched on is, is company stock. I think, you know, we work with a lot of people that will have company stock inside of a 401k plan and they've been buying this since, you know, maybe they're 20 or 30 and they've been buying it for 30 years and they have a really low cost basis in it. And so, you know, to take, for example, let's say you have Costco stock or AutoLeaf stock or something like that around. And, and you've been buying it for 30 years. And, and just for the sake of example, let's say your average cost is $10 per share of that stock and the stock's at $200 per share. And so one of the negatives of pulling it into an IRA immediately is, is then when you pull it out of the IRA to spend in retirement, it comes out as income taxes. And so there's, there's a little known, and, and a lot of financial advisors are familiar with it, but, but a little known strategy called net unrealized appreciation or NUA for short for jargon, right? Because we love jargon in our industry. And so 
you know, but when you're dealing with net unrealized appreciation, you can actually pull that stock out of the 401k plan, put it into a non-retirement account, and you'll pay capital gains instead of income taxes on your cost basis. Or you'll, I'm, I'm sorry, you'll pay income taxes on your cost basis, and then you'll end up holding that for a year, and then you can pay capital gains on all that appreciation. So you pay income taxes on that $10, and then you would end up paying capital gains, whatever your current capital gain rate is, when you go to sell the stock instead of income taxes. And that can save you significant amounts of money. And so I think it's important that if you if you have company stock or if you're looking at doing in-service distributions as you're in your 60s and you're looking at these different strategies, that you're looking at the pros and cons of all of the decisions. That you're looking at the cost of the 401k plan versus the cost of an IRA. You're looking at investment flexibility of the 401k plan versus investment flexibility of what you can do in the IRA. And, and then you're looking at taxes on, on unique strategies that may be applicable to you that maybe the person in the office next to you may not be fully aware of. And so you may be getting bad advice from somebody you know there in the office that may not be familiar with it. So does that make sense? Yeah. Hi, this is Through the Pines, and we are learning about what you should be doing if you're in your 60s, what kind of money-making decisions, what kind of planning should you be doing right now with your money. You're listening to the financial planners of Dan Nelson, Rex Baxter, and Brandon Smith. Brandon, do you have some, uh, some more numbers? You bet I do. That's my favorite part. All right, s'more numbers with Brandon so Smith. So more Social Security. Since it was the 60s, I thought we got to do a lot of Social Security. So. Yeah. And and we get this question a lot. People ask, well, how much, you know, what is the, the biggest social security benefit? So this, this kind of, I guess, gives us a little bit of that. Um, the maximum social security benefit paid to a working retire, a worker retiring at full retirement age. So this isn't going till age 70, right? This is between 60, 66 and 67 the age 66 and 67. So the, the, the maximum social security benefit in, in 2011 was $2,366 per month. So $2,300, $2,400 per month back in 2011. That same worker is now receiving $2,785. So, so all about a $400 per month or yeah, per month increase. Um, and that's annual increases of about one6 four percent per year wow yeah more money it's a good more money more money uh rex you touched on this subject briefly and i'm i'm just curious about you know capital gains uh i think there was some some talk about you know taxing capital gains i don't know if you know anything about that and then you know is that how does that affect you during retirement and how does that affect you in your 60s so so that's a great question brandon i think Capital gains right now is is a three tiered system uh, based on your income. So there's there's a zero percent capital gain tax rate, a fifteen percent capital gains tax rate, and a twenty percent capital gains tax rate. That's that's based off of your total income calculation. And so you know typically when you're in your sixties, you're in your your highest income bracket, as as Brandon has mentioned. And so you know typically that puts you in either the fifteen or the twenty percent capital gain tax bracket, most likely. And so as you go through your 60s on some of those things, such as, you know, your big capital gain expenses, which lots of times is real estate, right? Um, not necessarily a primary home, but it may be a rental home, it may be farmland, it may be, you know, some, something along an investment property, something like that, that may have significant capital gains 
involved in it. Whereas if you wait until after retirement, sometimes you may be in a lower capital gains tax rate. And so you definitely want to do some planning around that to see what capital gains you're going to take when. You want to make sure that your advisor is partnering with your CPA, with your accountant, to make sure that we're all on the same page, to make sure that, that we are looking at, at taxes in, in addition to the investment opportunities. And so there's, there's a saying that our team has, and, and that is that we, we invest with taxes in mind, but we don't allow taxes to control our decision, right? If it makes sense to sell something, sometimes you just need to sell it um, and not let taxes control that. I do think capital gains is on the chopping, well, I, I don't know about chopping block, but on the building block for the new tax bill. <laughs> Um, and so I know when uh, President Joe Biden had ran that he was trying to, to look at increasing capital gains tax rates for the top brackets up to 40 percent, which is enormous. Which break that down. So that means like if you if your investments make money within a given year, you would have to pay capital gains taxes on those investments. Great question. So that there is a lot of confusion about that. Right. And so yeah. you have you have two kinds of of what we term gains, right? You have unrealized gains, which are things that we have not sold during the year or haven't haven't sold at all yet. And then you have realized gains and that's something that you've sold. And so realized gains, when you sell something, that's when capital gains would would take effect and, and come into play. Um, does, that, does that answer your question? Yeah, I thought it was, unre- I thought they were trying to tax unrealized. No, so they're they're trying to no, they're trying to to increase the tax rate on realized gains. Okay, and and that's what you know President Biden was trying to shoot for forty percent. Um, right now, they're bouncing in the current bill, and again, this will probably change multiple times. But currently, they're bouncing between twenty five to twenty six and a half percent for the top bracket from the current twenty percent is what they're they're looking at doing currently. Um, and so we'll we'll see how that ends up at the end of the year. I think at, at the end of the day, the bottom line is that capital gains taxes are probably going to go up. Um, and so you do want to pay attention to that. The, the, the whisper is that they may backdate the execution date on those capital gains to September 13th and, and kind of peg the date. So if you sell something after September 13th, it'll probably be subject to the new capital gains tax law if they get it passed. And if you had sold something earlier in the year, it probably will be applicable to the old tax law. And, and again, that's where a CPA would come in hand and, and, and make those decisions. So, so how does that Dan? affect you in your, in your 60s if you're, yeah, oh, Dan, pipe in on this. If, say you sell a house to downsize and your house has you know, uh, made a couple hundred thousand dollars and then you sell your home to downsize. Is that what you're talking about? It would affect, it would affect something like that? Go ahead, Rex. You want to talk that about? And I have, I have a comment about what we just talked about. So go ahead. Sure. So, so as far as as your primary residence, currently you're allowed to protect up to two hundred and fifty thousand uh, individually of your primary residence from capital gains, five hundred thousand as a couple if you're married um, from capital gains. So, if your house went from three hundred thousand in this last real estate bull market up to seven hundred thousand, that's four hundred thousand in capital gains. Um, that would be excluded from capital gains taxes. And, you know, and, and lots of times you need to be keeping track of your receipts, making sure that if you do improvements, not just repairs, but improvements on your property that can add to your cost basis on your real estate. But, but there's, there's a lot of places in the country where, you know, 
people had purchased their home in 2008, nine or 10 after the great recession. And they've gone from a $200,000 home to an $800,000 home. And so 600,000 of gains. And so part of that would be subject to capital gains taxes. And so you do need to pay attention to that as you're selling not only your primary residence, all investment real estate would be subject to capital gains, rental properties, if you're flipping homes, anything like that. Yeah. I think it's worth noting too that that on that, if you need to have lived in your home for two of the last five years to qualify for that for that nice little exemption on on social security. Or sorry, social security for the exemption on capital gains tax. Okay. So so if, if you if you're married married filing jointly, you've got you've built up your house has grown by three hundred thousand over the last, you know, whatever years and you've lived there two of the last five years then you're not going to pay capital gains tax on that transaction. Okay. So, so when I start thinking about capital gains and especially I'm in my sixties and I'm thinking about those types of things all the time, uh, any kind of tax, you want to uh, be smart about that. And one of the things that in fact I did today, uh, you're going to make a donation towards the end of the year. You might make donations, charitable do- donations to some of your favorite charities. I have, uh, uh, substantial uh, gains in some stocks in individual accounts. You can take, I had one today where I paid $5,000 years ago, number of years ago, it's worth $15,000. And I wanted to take that and I donate that stock at the cost now at 15000 where my cost originally was 5000 to a charity. And of course, you don't have to pay a capital gain on that. You're going to pay uh, make a donation to the charity anyway, why not do it with appreciated stock? So that's something that a lot of people could be thinking about towards every year when they start thinking about their charitable contributions, as opposed to paying the capital gains on that stock. And the charity doesn't pay the tax either. So you're not sticking the charity with the bill. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Nonprofit status is a thing. That's a good thing. Um, all right. Thank you so much. Uh, before we head out here with, with another question, those of you watching, if you do have questions for, for anyone here on the panel, go ahead and leave a comment and we should be able to see those comments in, in real time and we can uh, potentially help you out. So uh, what about working in your 60s and um, how do you transition from or if you just want to keep working, you know, can you take money from retirement funds while you're working? What are the rules? What are some what are some what's some advice as far as that goes? If you like your work and you want to keep making income. Yeah, I'll, I'll take oh, No, go ahead, Dan. Let me talk about this for a minute. I'm going through this myself. So um, I stepped out of management recently and uh, I'm working just with my clients and this team here with Rex and Brandon and Holly. And uh, one of the questions that comes up all the time in my mind is how long do I want to work? How long do I want to continue to work? I just turned 65. And so you think about that a lot. And while you're working, you can still be making contributions to your 401k and get that match at your particular company. You can also um, decide well, I want to plan ahead and I want to retire in 18 months or two years or whatever it might be. But mentally, what you should be doing in your 60s is you should be saying to yourself, okay, let's just say that retirement date that's out there 18 months was today. What am I going to do tomorrow? What am I going to do next week? What, what, what are the plans that I have for my life at this age? And you should be making those kinds of plans 
all the time too because more than just the income what are you going to do every day to fill your day and to and to um, you know make a good contribution to society and it could be volunteering for certain things or it could be it could be golf it could be riding a bike it could be anything that you want to do but that's something that I've thought about a lot as I get closer to retirement is what what is my day going to look like and how does my wife feel about what my day looks like whether she's working or not working yeah. and so that's uh, something that should be part of your discussions with your financial planner also is what does your day look like after you retire yeah Randy? Yeah, just, just to add to that, um, if you're looking at pulling more money in via, I think there's really two two roads here. We've got Social Security on one side and we've got retirement account distribution. So if you're in your 60s, um, we can actually pull money out of retirement accounts, right? After age 59 and a half, not only can we do in-service distributions, but we can also pull money out just to live on. Um, that, that money, if it's in traditional style assets, traditional 401k, traditional IRA, it won't be penalized. However, it will be taxed. So we pull out, and that, that's the difference between an in-service, right? The in-service we pull, we roll into an IRA, it's not taxed or penalized. If we pull it out to spend it, and we're older than 59 and a half, there is no 10% penalty. However, there is the tax. And so we have to be conscious of that, especially, I mean, I've seen clients, you know, they're like, you know what, I just, I need, I need my car, right? I need, I need a nice car. I need a motorhome or whatever that is. And they pull a, a giant amount out all in one year in the highest tax bracket. And so that can be detrimental. And we want to make sure we're, we're planning for that. We can still get that nice toy or whatever it is, but maybe we pull the money out over three years or over two years um, to, to try and minimize the tax consequences. So I think when you're pulling money in your 60s out of your 401ks, IRAs, it's incredibly important to be very mindful of taxes, even though the penalty has been cleaned clean, or taken care of. Okay. The other thing, oh, sorry. I was going to say, don't don't boo me, but would you ever uh, consider somebody doing that as a loan to minimize how much they're taking out in a year? Boo. boo. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I love it. I love it. Yeah. No, I, I don't know that that would be necessarily a bad idea. I, you know. It, <laughs> Look at Rex. <laughs> He's like, no. <laughs> I mean, you, you can take the loan out. You'd have to start paying that back, right? And and yeah. and the thing to consider, too, is let's say we take out a giant loan and then you quit, right? That's going to act as a full-on whatever you haven't paid. If you can't pay it back, it's going to go through as a distribution and, and might jump those tax brackets. And so really, I, I think in your 60s, pulling money out of IRAs, 401ks, taxes are paramount in, in trying to figure out what makes the most sense just because you can really with if your income's high you can really you know compound to an already bad problem so 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 taxes on 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 taking retirement distributions as far as social security goes you can actually start taking social security as young as age 62 it's actually age 60 if you're widowed but but if if you're not widowed it's age 62 um if you are working and younger than full retirement age. Now, full retirement age is anywhere between age 66 and age 67, depending on when you were born. Um, but if you take your benefit prior to your full retirement age, there's a pretty significant penalty. If you're making more than, I don't have the number right in front of me, but it's about 18 to $19,000 per year. Any amount 
that you make over that, your social security benefit will be taxable uh, $1 for every $2 you make. And so that very quickly, you can do the math, that very quickly takes your social security benefit down to zero, which it's it's not terrible, right? That penalty actually gets re-amortized into your future benefit. So it doesn't just disappear and go away. However, it's very, I, I guess the, the easy rule of thumb to say is it's very difficult to pull social security um, benefits out prior to full retirement age if you are working. I, I have to chime in on your on your question there, Brandon, just for a second. <laughs> and so yeah, I can't just I boo and next going. Yeah, this is good. I know. I know. So you know I don't like that. You know, I I you know, I think I think, you know, certainly there there's an argument as far as leverage and, and getting money at low interest rates, things like that. But I do think that, you know, taking a four one K loan, I think the thing that, that most people don't realize is is you're subjecting that money to double taxation. Right. When you take a loan out of your 401k, it went in pre-tax into the 401k originally. You pull it out. You don't have to pay taxes because it's a loan, but then you're paying the money back in with after-tax money. Right. You get your paycheck and then the money goes back in with after-tax dollars. And then it's back in your 401k plan. And then when you pull it out in retirement to spend it, then you have to pay income taxes on it again. And so, you know, even though people make the argument, yeah, but I'm paying the interest to myself. I'm paying it into the 401k loan, you know, things like that. I, I understand that. But if you're paying, you know, 12% federal, five state, so 17%, now you're paying 34% in taxes on that money. And so that can be one of the most expensive places to access your capital okay, as far as that goes. That's not what I was talking about. I'm talking about like rather than take 30000 or $100,000 out for a new RV in one year and then you dramatically increase that year's uh, income, you instead just go to your bank and say, hey, I need a car loan and you get a car loan and then you just, it's just part of what you pay because you're paying yourself the, an annual salary and you're like, I can afford it. I can afford the three $600 a month because I'm paying myself that much a year anyway. So why should I take out an additional hundred and, and have the tax implications of the hundred, but I'm just paying for it with my, my normal withdrawals. Yeah. I don't think we're, I don't think we're fans of loans, no. especially that late in life. However, to your point, that is far better than just taking 50 grand out of your 401k and ramping up your tax bracket. If we can take out a loan and spread that over three, four years, that that's going to be better than another really bad scenario. Rex? Unless, unless you're 65 oh, yeah. and retired. No. If you're 45, go take the loan out. If you're 65 and retired, no. I, I don't think that's ever a good idea, especially if you spent your whole life trying to pay off debt. Sure. Um, unless you're a very, very disciplined person and your spouse is also a disciplined person disciplined person. And uh, it's something that uh, you, you need to look at it as I don't actually need this loan, I can purchase this, then you might consider that only if the interest rates were good. And there's a reason for that. But I would pay it off early. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go out five years or six years or anything close to that. It might be a short term bridge loan, then I could understand it. All right, let's end with this, Rex. We have uh, a good friend, Glenn Martinson, asking, what's the best way to get money out of a self-directed Roth IRA upon retirement? So, so Glenn, great question, and we appreciate you listening and, and chiming in. I think 
it, it depends on what you're invested in inside of that self-directed Roth IRA. And so lots of people that are doing self-directed IRAs have that invested in real estate, metals, uh, digital currency, um, things along those lines that, that may or may not be as liquid as far as that goes. And so that gets very, very tricky in those self-directed accounts, whether it's a Roth IRA or a traditional. And so I think that's one of the things that, that probably a few years before retirement that you're wanting to, to look at and put a strategy in place as to, you know, let's, let's say for the sake of argument that you have real estate in that self-directed Roth IRA, you have an investment property. And, and so it's illiquid. It is, it might be kicking in a little bit of, of income or something like that. I'll, and Glenn, great. I'll, I'll get to the, to the follow-up as far as what you have in there, as far as that goes. Um, but let me follow my thought here for two seconds as far as if it's real estate, there may be others that, that have that. Then, so, so you have income coming in, um, then, then you can kind of take that distribution out of there uh, as far as, as the income coming in. But if you don't have the income coming in, then it gets really tricky because you need to sell the assets, um, things along those lines. In your situation, um, and I don't want to get too personal to anybody on, on this call, um, but if you have traditional investments, in there as far as regular you know stocks bonds mutual funds etfs inside of a, a self-directed ira then then it's very liquid and so then it's just a matter of of what we call maximizing your tax triangle right and so at the top of the triangle you have your your taxable in uh, as far as that goes your your normal taxable bucket you have your tax deferred bucket like your iras and 401ks and then you have your tax-free bucket, which would be your Roth IRAs. And so then we're just trying to maximize what we're pulling from where in order to keep your tax bracket in a certain range to try and minimize your taxes over the life of your retirement. As far as getting the money out, that's, that's a phone call to your custodian and just saying, hey, look, I want to sell ABC, liquidate it and send me a check. And most uh, self-directed IRA custodians We'll have some, some will do it over the phone, some will require paperwork. So it kind of depends on what your individual situation is. But I think the important thing is, is being efficient with your money and, and being efficient with what taxes am I going to pay in other areas if I don't pull it out of the Roth IRA or if I pull all of it out of the Roth IRA and I don't have that available for my later years in life then am I going to all of a sudden jump myself into a higher tax bracket 10 years from now? And so I think looking at, at that combination is, is what makes the most sense. I'm not sure I fully am grasping your question, Glenn, as far as that goes. I think it's easy to get money out of Roth IRAs unless it's illiquid and unless you're dealing with somebody, somebody personal there. So, but I can tell you this, Glenn, <laughs> planwithbaxter.com <laughs> is our website. Wow. Our email is rex.m.baxter at ampf.com. <clears throat> and you're welcome to reach out to us any way that you want. So, yeah. And he's finally, he just asked if there's a good way to pull the funds out of the LLC and avoid the custodian. Uh, they are a bit greedy, says, says Glenn. It, it, self-directed IRAs have a lot of expenses. Some, some you see, some you don't see until the end, until you're pulling it out. You know, if you have an LLC inside of inside of the Roth IRA, so that's essentially a, a limited liability company or a business entity. And even though the business entity owns different investments inside of it, 
that custodian's having to do an, an annual valuation on the LLC. And, and so it does get tricky, which is why you're saying they're greedy. And for them, they're, they're covering their profits and their margins. And so I, I think that that's something that people need to be aware of before they get into it first off. But once you're in it, then I think um, having a discussion as far as is that something that can be, you know, monetized, can those investments be transferred to a non-self-directed IRA? Can they not, you know, what, what are the options there? And that's a very personal discussion that, that would probably be better had offline as opposed to online. No, right? let's do, so. let's do it right here. Let's do it right now. We, <laughs> we got to wrap, we got to wrap. This has been, you know, what do you do with your finances in your sixties and uh, welcome uh, to all those who were, were watching. Thank you so much for watching. And, and, and if those of you are in your sixties, you've made it this far. So congratulations. Uh, I am jealous. Um, just a little bit, Dan talking to you. Uh, all right. So thank you so much, uh, Rex, Brandon and Dan plan with Baxter.com. If you'd like to follow up with any of our financial professionals today, this has been through the pines reminding you to use yesterday's dollars to finance tomorrow's dreams. 